Oh, hey there. I see you've decided to press play. You might want to reconsider. The following broadcast is not for the faint of heart. This story of such immoral themes with such unsavory characters, it's, well, we've warned you. It's 1803, London. The Royal College of Surgeons hosts a medical lecture to an audience of doctors and other curious onlookers. At the front of the hall stands Italian physicist Giovanni Aldini. Next to him is a massive battery of copper and zinc. And his subject, a corpse, a recently executed convict who'd been hanged just an hour before for drowning his wife and child. An electrical current runs from the giant battery through these metal rods that Aldini is holding. He touches them to the corpse's face, its torso, its um, rectum. One eyewitness recounted the striking demonstration to the Times newspaper. The jaw of the deceased criminal began to quiver. The adjoining muscles were horribly contorted and one eye was actually opened. The right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. It appeared to the uninformed part of the bystanders as if the wretched man was on the eve of being restored to life. It's alive! It's alive! Electric experiments like these helped inspire Mary Shelley's iconic story, Frankenstein. It's one of the first science fiction novels, and it came to her in a blood-curdling dream. I have found it! What terrified me will terrify others. And I need only describe the spectra which had haunted my midnight pillow. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. It turns out the last Friday of October has a name, Frankenstein Friday. It's a random holiday made up by a random person. But if you listen to the show, you know we love those. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein over 200 years ago, based in part on the science of the time. But it was also a hugely personal story. How did her monster become so iconic? And why has her story been told and retold time and time again? Will Franken find out after the break? Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, if you're like me, a girl who chronically didn't do her assigned reading, you may know Frankenstein less from the novel and more from, say, the shelves of a spirit Halloween store. But the original story? I don't know. It's like, what, some scientist makes a giant green dude and 
maybe there's like villagers with pitchforks or something. Turns out there's way more to the story of Frankenstein than campy Halloween fun. Mary Shelley was only 18 years old when she wrote this timeless story. It was 1816, and she was on vacation one summer in Geneva, Switzerland. It wasn't much of a summer. A volcano had erupted in Indonesia, causing some wacky weather across Europe. So it was unseasonably cold, which meant that Mary and her traveling companions were mainly stuck indoors. We crowded around the blazing wood fire and occasionally amused ourselves with some German stories of ghosts, which happened to fall into our hands. These tales excited us in a playful desire of imitation to write each a story founded on some supernatural occurrence. A ghost story writing contest. Now that's something our young writer could sink her teeth into. Mary had grown up around literary icons. Mary's father, William Godwin, was a philosopher and political writer. Mary spent hours in her father's library reading multiple books at once. She'd listen in on her father's conversations with visiting authors, scientists, and political reformers. She studied science, philosophy, Greek mythology. Yeah, pretty intense for a teenager. But there was one endeavor she was drawn to over all the others. As a child, I scribbled. And my favorite pastime during the hours given to me for recreation was to write stories. Yeah, those scribbles? We're talking like a 39-quatrain poem in iambic pentameter, you know, like Shakespeare vibes, that her father published when Mary was just 11. But Mary's childhood, while intellectually rigorous, was far from perfect. Mary's mother, the feminist philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, died of complications from childbirth, leaving her husband alone and struggling to care for Mary and her older sister. But then, someone new enters the scene. A stepmother, but a kind of wicked stepmother to Mary. This is Anne Malor, professor of English and women's studies at University of California, Los Angeles. She's written a whole book about Mary Shelley's life. And Anne says that when Mary's father remarries to a widow who brings Mary a new stepbrother and sister, home life becomes very rocky. Stepmother and daughter do not get along. When Mary's 15, her father receives a letter from an acquaintance in Scotland. And... Immediately writes back and says, um, oh, you want to do something for me? I have this very troublesome daughter. If you'll just take her off my hands. And so... <laughs> At the age of 15, she's shipped off to Scotland by herself to this family, strangers. Um, she spends two years with them. Imagine your dad tells you to fuck off for two years because you don't get along with his new wife. Talk about pain. Mary eventually returns to London, where she meets a young, ambitious poet, Percy Shelley. And Percy leaves an impression on Mary. He was seven years older. He was a published poet and novelist, uh, very much a student-teacher relationship between the two of them. Oh boy. Well, there's Percy. Handsome, intelligent, passionate, and very married. But when Percy meets Mary, his marriage is in a rough spot, and his eyes wander. 
Mary is the first to boldly confess her love, much to the disapproval of her father, who tries to stop the affair. But the teen heart wants what the teen heart wants. Percy leaves his wife for Mary, and they run away together to France, when Mary's father refuses to speak with her. Mary gets pregnant. She gives birth to a little girl. But the baby is born premature and dies after only two weeks. Heartbroken, Mary writes in her journal of a recurring dream. Dream that my baby came to life again. That it had been cold and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived. Awake and find no baby. I think about that little thing all day. Not in good spirits. At such a young age, just 18 years, Mary had experienced her parents' rejection, the passionate chase of love, and the profound loss of a child. She's carrying a lot with her that cold summer in Geneva in 1816. You'd think this ghost story contest she had going with her travel companions would bring some levity, take her mind off of the stresses of her life. But she struggles to come up with a story to share. I busied myself to think of a story, a story to rival those which had excited us to this task. I thought and pondered vainly. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. And I don't blame her. She's trying to impress a pretty tough audience. Among them, her stepsister Claire, the English poet, Lord Byron, and her poet boo, Percy. They frequently encourage each other's writing, and they discuss philosophy and science, one of Percy's favorite subjects. He actually thought of himself as a chemist. He went to Oxford, studied chemistry, or studied what they called natural physiology at the time. And he was doing all sorts of experiments uh, on electricity, electrifying cats, One time, Percy flew a cat up in a kite in the middle of a storm. Yeah, like a dark-sided Benjamin Franklin. Here's the thing, though. In the early 19th century, electricity was kind of that girl. We were just beginning to capture and study its power. Remember Aldini and his horrific public demonstrations on executed criminals? Mary was familiar with these experiments. And they intrigued her. Perhaps a a corpse would be reanimated. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together, and endued with vital warmth. Perhaps these images of a corpse contorting and limbs convulsing are simmering in the back of Mary's head. Perhaps she's still haunted by the baby she's lost, the father who still won't speak to her. And then, one night... Tossing and turning between sleep and awake, she has a striking dream. I saw, with shut eyes, but acute mental vision. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out. And then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with... An uneasy, half-vital motion. When Mary wakes up, she starts jotting down a story based on the haunting images of her dream. 
She shares it with her traveling companions. And they're horrified. Which is a good thing, remember? It's supposed to be a ghost story. And Percy encourages her to expand her short story into a novel, which she does. Frankenstein. If you've never read the original text, don't worry. I'm about to hit you with the highlights. And since this all started as a ghost story... By the light of a single candle, crazed scientist named Victor Frankenstein stands over a lifeless body. He's left his entire world behind. His family, his future wife, all for this secret project. Building his creature. Then, Dr. Frankenstein takes the final step, giving his creature a spark of life. And it's a success. But when the creature opens his eyes, Dr. Frankenstein is horrified. The creature's dull yellow eyes are frightening. His yellowish skin fails to conceal the muscle and arteries beneath. And he towers at a staggering eight feet. The doctor runs from his creation, which he now finds hideous. The hulk of a creature escapes off into the night. We hear screams wherever people cross his path. But he isn't just some murderous monster. When he comes across a family, he secretly observes them and learns language, literature, and music. But when the family discovers the creature, they beat him and chase him from their home. Rejected by every corner of society, the creature seeks out his creator for answers. He finds Dr. Frankenstein and tells him that he's deeply lonely and in pain. And so he asks Dr. Frankenstein for a solution, a companion, love. Hey, even ghost stories need a love plot. Dr. Frankenstein feels sorry for his creature and agrees to make him a companion. But then doubt and fear set in. How could he unleash another monster on the world? The scientist destroys the companion. In revenge, the creature kills Dr. Frankenstein's closest friend and his future wife. Learning this, Dr. Frankenstein is determined to destroy his creation. He chases him up into the icy Arctic. But cold, sick, and worn down, Dr. Frankenstein succumbs to illness and dies in his pursuit. The creature mourns the death of his creator, his only true companion. And at last, the creature runs off into the dark of night, towards the Arctic Pole, and certain death. Ugh, even the abridged version gets me good, man. So how did we get from the story of a science experiment gone awry and some classic bad parenting to the green monster we all know and love today trick-or-treating outside your door? It wasn't easy. Mary's story could have ended here. There were critics that were positive about it, but a lot of them early on said, this is objectionable, it's horrific, it's disgusting, it's appalling. 
The monster leaps from the page and into the real world after the break. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome back, my Franken-friends. Before the break, an 18-year-old Mary Shelley won her vacation ghost story contest, ushering Frankenstein into the world. That's often referred to as sort of a landmark, if not the beginning, of the science fiction genre itself. This is theater professor and scholar Dr. Jeannie Tian. She's studied theatrical adaptations of Frankenstein. And she says that at first, not everyone appreciated what Mary had created. Here she was creating a story that was so ambitious, so innovative, so ahead of its time, that that in and of itself offended tastes and sensibilities. Actually, in 1818, when Mary initially published Frankenstein, she did so anonymously. And that makes sense. Being a woman author attracted negative attention. Shortly after the novel was published, a reviewer in The British Critic wrote, The writer of it is, we understand, a female. If our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex, it is no reason why we should. And we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment. But there was another big sore spot. For a 19th century society structured around religion, the creation of life without God was a big no-no. In its review of the novel at the time, the Edinburgh Magazine wrote, We do not well see why it should have been written. We are accustomed, happily, to look upon the creation of a living and intelligent being as a work that is fitted only to inspire a religious emotion. Yet, despite the harsh critiques, there was one group that saw potential in Frankenstein. Theater nerds. So, Frankenstein was first adapted in 1823 as a stage play written by Richard Brinsley Peake called Presumption. Yeah, he didn't even call it Frankenstein. Jeannie says 
presumption took some liberties. I say this with absolute love. The play, it (laughs) doesn't read like Shelley's novel much at all. It's very much a melodrama and appealing to melodramatic tastes and sensibilities of the day. There's action, there's singing, there's pantomiming and humor. And if Frankenstein was going to appeal to the wider public, it needed to draw a bold line between good and evil. And Peake draws this line by introducing a new character, a nervous lab assistant. Master only hired me because he thought I looked so stupid. Stupid! (laughs) But am I stupid, though? To be sure, Mr. Frankenstein is a kind man, and I should respect him. But that I thinks as how he holds converse with somebody below, with a long tail, horns, and hooves. This lab assistant witnesses Dr. Frankenstein making this creation, and he immediately is like, you're doing the work of the devil. The creature isn't even referred to as the creature or a monster. He is referred to as a demon. Mary actually saw the production on August 29th, 1823. There she is, sitting in the audience in a theater in London. People are on the edge of their seats for the final chase scene, and Mary watches as on stage, Dr. Frankenstein stumbles after the demon into the snowy mountains. He points a gun at the demon and shoots. And then this triggers an avalanche that kills them both. Oh, the drama. Audiences eat it up. In a letter to a friend, Mary recalls that night seeing her monster alive on stage, played by English actor Thomas Potter Cook. But lo and behold, I found myself famous. Oh, the story is not well managed, but Cook played the creature's part extremely well. I was much amused, and it appeared to excite a breathless eagerness in the audience. If I were Shelley, I don't know that I could find the same grace. Not after seeing a bunch of theater kids give my novel the Riverdale treatment. But tearing this story apart and sewing it back together is something that would happen over and over again. I've read some adaptations that were just wild. It's hard to believe they were ever basing it on anything that Shelley wrote. There have been tons of parodies and comedic adaptations. There's an adaptation where the creature dies by falling into a volcano. By 1826, there were 15 different melodramatic adaptations of the story, including that one with the volcano. That's from a play called The Man and the Monster. The story of Frankenstein had officially taken off. People recognized the character of the mad scientist and his monster in whatever form they took on the stage, in political cartoons, even in advertisements. But the monster that you recognize, that Halloween costume version, that wouldn't come around until, uh... Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff. In 1931, Universal Studios had just put out Dracula, and quickly saw a promising future for the horror genre in their lineup. The stock market had just crashed. America was entering the Great Depression. Audiences just wanted an escape from reality. 
And what better way to get that than with horror and Frankenstein? I can imagine that there are people going to the movie theater in 1931 that haven't encountered a film like this yet. Makeup artist Jack Pierce spent months developing the monster's iconic look and feel. A green, scarred face framed by jet black hair, a flat top head, and a sharp brow line, bolts in the neck. A look that eclipsed any previous designs and would make any future designs forgettable. The effort paid off because it's the look you know and the look you love. The first close-ups you see of Boris Karloff on film, it, it, it is jarring, it is scary. The eyes, the way that they are lit, there's a lot of um, influence that is taking from German expressionist films in that era. You see the, the shadows and the light. It's just beautifully shot in that way. The movie brought Frankenstein's monster to life for audiences in a way that no other adaptation had done before, with an iconic image. Which was important, because while Universal Studios couldn't copyright Frankenstein, you know, it's in the public domain, it could copyright the monster's distinct new look. It, I mean, it is, it's strange, right? You can go to the store now and you can pick up a Halloween decoration and it will look like Boris Karloff's monster in this, you know, and of course... Universal Studios cashed out on its iconic image. There were sequels. Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, The Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And over the years, many others have taken a shot with Mary's mad scientist and monster. The story continues to morph. There's young Frankenstein, it's a Mel Brooks parody version of the story. Alive, it's alive, it's alive! The slasher, Bride of Chucky, a horror about a murderous doll brought to life. Awake! Awake! What a crock. There's Tim Burton's twist on the story, Edward Scissorhands, in which the monster is a guy with scissors for hands. Where are your parents? Um, your mother? Your father? I would say definitely part of the reason that Frankenstein has had the longevity that it has is because it hasn't kept telling Shelley's story again and again, that it has shifted it, that it's taken the sort of core central components, at least the characters, and doing what they want with them. The story shapeshifts, but its framework is still there. And this extended life of Frankenstein is something that Mary Shelley herself anticipated after seeing Presumption, that first theatrical adaptation. Perhaps she didn't know quite how far her story would travel, but she saw it evolving and, in a way, outgrowing her, carrying on without her. She wrote about giving her monster a last send-off in the preface of an 1831 revised edition of her novel. And now, once again, I bid my hideous progeny go forth and prosper. Her hideous progeny. Her novel, now her own monster. In all of these Franken versions, there is one last adaptation I want to mention. A 2011 play from London's National Theatre. 
it takes us back to some of Mary's original themes of what it means to be human and the destructive pain of rejection. And it's told from the creature's perspective. With all that I read, all that I learn, I discover how much I do not know. Ideas batter me like like hailstones. Questions but no answers. Who am I? Where am I from? Do I have a family? He is not a monster out of the gate. He's just a human born and doesn't fit in. And it's cruel how people treat him. And it's cruel that Dr. Frankenstein abandoned him. And even when he encounters Dr. Frankenstein later, again, we sense the fact that in some ways, the creature is far more intelligent than Dr. Frankenstein and what he understands about humanity. And we'll continue to see this story rewritten again and again in any and every genre, cartoon and live action, film and stage. Shelley's novel sticks with us, and not just because it's groundbreaking, one of the first in the science fiction genre, but because Shelley wrote a myth, a myth that could be passed down through generations, a myth that wrestles with timeless themes that get to the very heart of our anxieties, around creating life, around losing it, our desire for love and connection, a myth that is, two centuries later, still relevant, a mirror reflecting back humanity's ugliest impulses to reject, to abandon, to fear what we do not understand. And really, what could be a more enduring horror than that? Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Nick Del Rose. Next week, we're bringing back Not Past It Trivia Edition, but this time with a special election-themed spin. Our producer is Olivia Briley. Our associate producer is Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Katie Feather, Zach Stewart-Pontier, and Andrea B. Scott. Voice acting by Ben Britton and Shelley Chenoy as Mary Shelley. Fact-checking by Ian Michael. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, Peter Leonard, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to the National Theatre of London. Their 2011 production of Frankenstein is available to watch on National Theatre at Home. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller in alternating roles as both the creature and Victor Frankenstein. Find it at ntathome.com. And to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, Ariel Joseph, and Joshua Bianchi, Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I was giving this giant mug 
that, you know, looks like the Boris Karloff green head and bolts in it. And uh, I used that for a long time. And then, of course, he broke. But the nice thing about breaking a Frankenstein mug is you can glue it back together and it still looks like you're honoring Frankenstein. (laughs) 